Welcome to my podcast and today I'm in the morning room within the castle and my guest is Susanna Constantine. Well welcome Susanna, thank you so much for joining me here today. It's never the warmest room, but it's a very pretty room, isn't it? <laughs> it's Fiona, it's so lovely to be here and it's lovely to be in this room. And it's weird because the the fabric of the sofa and the chairs is what my parents used to have. It's old school Colfax and Fowler <laughs> chintz. <laughs> It's such fun. Do you know, I've got quite a lot of Colfax and Fowler in this castle because mm. it's just kind of... Actually, I think it's pretty cool. Oh, And it's I wonderful. love it. And mm. I bought some of their ends of reels and it's huge curtains in bedrooms on the top floor, which is completely magic. But thank you for admiring it. But it's really lovely to welcome you here. And um, you've written a marvellous book, which I've read, ready for absolutely nothing. And John, who's just been here, has just bought one for his wife. I think it's a wonderful Christmas present, birthday present, and he got it for his wedding anniversary. And I, I much enjoyed reading it, and it was remarkably honest. But can I ask you, when did you start writing this book? It took me, it was actually quite quick, it took me about nine months, and the reason I wrote it was just sort of before, on the cusp of lockdown, I went public about being an alcoholic. Actually, no, it was in lockdown, because there was these statistics coming out about women, in particular, who were really struggling, and they were growing. So I thought, okay, well maybe by sharing my story and my own experience mm -hmm. I can help other women because being an alcoholic a functioning alcoholic which I was high functioning it's a very isolating and lonely place and then I started thinking could I have avoided being an alcoholic and for the first time in my life I started looking back I'm someone who never looks at the past at all and I realised that was, there were so many extraordinary things that had happened to me in my life. And of course, people know me from Trini and Susanna. And in America, we did a show called Making Over America. And we were on the Oprah Winfrey show quite often with Oprah doing a sort of, you know, makeover section on that. And that actually is the least interesting part of my life. because, And also everyone knows about it. You know, we spent most of our adult lives on television and in the media. And all this other stuff I'd forgotten. So um, I thought, OK, there's a book in there. Well, I certainly have much enjoyed it. And I know that um, you the book begins, really for me, in Rutland mm. and around Beaver Castle. And we both know... Emma Rutland, mm. the current Duchess of Rutland, living at Beaver, and both huge admirers of her. And it's um, a very, I think of it as, well, having stayed there in January, very cold, <laughs> with these extraordinary plains around the castle, which is on this it's sort of kind of a hill. It is extraordinary escarpment, I suppose you might call it, if you studied geography and knew what the word was. But it is an extraordinary place, and it does, and the family does, dominate the surrounding landscape, doesn't it, in an old-fashioned way? It really does. And, I mean, you, you know, if you ask a child to draw a picture of a castle, that's what they will draw. It's a sort of turreted, castellated, massive building on top of a hill, and it is that... And um, it is where I grew up, um, and I had a 
very idyllic childhood. You know, I come from a privileged background, was very lucky in that way. Um, but it was also quite lonely and it was quite isolating. But I loved that. It's something that I grew to, you know, grew used to. And, um, you know, Teresa Manners, my dear, dear childhood friend, we, we were both driving around there from the age of eight. We'd either drive or if we couldn't, we'd drive on the roads from the age of about eight. As soon as we were old, my legs were quite longer than hers so I could reach the pedals. But um, we were driving and there were no police around. I mean, the freedom those times mm. um, afforded us. And that's one of the things I, I particularly love looking at this book now, because it was almost like I was writing about someone else, is these little moments of social history. Mm. And so it's quite nostalgic. It was very nostalgic, the books, because I covered the 60s, 70s and 80s in particular. And that was such a time of immense change. Mm. Um, so that's sort of encapsulated and it's told through anecdotes of my life, many of which are extraordinary, but they all reveal ordinary truths that everybody who reads this book can relate to. Well, I think so many, well, I'm certainly a pony lover and grew up mm. with ponies. And I just clearly remember when I was sort of 10 and when my sisters were like six or seven and you know, my mother would say, well, well darlings, go, go off your ride, but can you please be back for lunchtime? Because Queenie's, who used to cook for us, is making a treacle tart. So we were these two young girls going off on ponies. This was in Kent. There's no phones, no nothing. Mm. And um, we had a hoof pick in case of in case a shoe came off. Yeah. And then we used to disappear off with an with a ordnance survey map in our pocket if we got lost, which sometimes we did. And it, it was... It reminded me of the, of of that freedom. Yeah, it really it was extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, very very lucky. I completely agree with you. It, it was just it really different. was. But then within that freedom and within this kind of wonderful Enid Blyton esque mm. um, environment, there were not financial difficulties certainly, but emotional difficulties mm. and. You know, for so my mum, and this is not a misery memoir, it's hilarious, most of it, but you know, she was bipolar, and um, and so, and that's you know, I ch everything I look back at my life. So, I had a both bipolar mother, my father, God bless him, was brought up sort of almost with the you know, Victorian manner, so he was a bit of an emotional desert. So, looking at my mum's illness in particular. I, the positive I take from that is my ability to live in the present because I never knew what was going to happen tomorrow. So I'd make the most of every single day, whether she was on a high, on a low, whether, you know, she was OK. It'd be like, right, I know exactly where I am. She's on a high. She's going, you know, bonkers. She's gone off shopping to buy 50 dishcloths. But I know where I am. I understand that. So, so that was something hugely positive that came out of it. And also my love of nature, because nature mm. was something that I could trust. It was what I knew was always going to be there. It was reliable. So my animals, you know, my mm. dog, my pony. And like your queenie, we had a wonderful woman called Mrs. A, who was like my surrogate mother. And in writing this book, there were so many realizations that I had. So it wasn't emotional or cathartic, but it was like, oh my God, oh my God. So one thing I realized was that I actually love Mrs. A than I, more than I did my mother. And that's a terrible admission 
But I think there will be people who will identify with that. You know, I adored my mother. I hear her worshipped her. But because of her illness, she couldn't give me that stability, mm. whereas Mrs A could. It is odd. We were lucky enough to have Nanny, who's actually... Mm. She came to work for my mum when I was five, mm. and my another sister's two sisters was four, and there are six of us. So Bloody she never hell. really left. So, and she's now looking after my number wow. two sister's kids. Yeah. And in fact, I might ask her to come on a podcast, because she is entirely unique. She does enjoy gin, seeing as we have high glycosal gin. But it's always a way to tempt her down. But, but it was, she was always there. We used to play mum and nan off against each other, actually. So we were a bit different, not very well behaved. But it was an idyllic childhood and very Enid Blyton. And a lot of hours were spent in Cornwall, which had such freedom as yours was spent in, in Rutland. And, of course, you now again live in the countryside, mm. don't you? That's given you perhaps the the stability that you it grew up with. interesting how we do... I think so many of us do go full circle. And I know that, you know, I grew up in the countryside, well, between London and the countryside. And, um, and now, and then I went through the television years and la-la-la. And, um, but now I've gone back to, and I think alcohol has played a part in that, because when I was doing television... This is something I've just realised talking to you now. When I was I was on television, that wasn't really who I was. I was doing it. We got swept along. We were so lucky, Trini and I, in many ways. And yes, we worked a huge amount and we worked very hard. But that wasn't... I think I was performing the whole way through that, not just on camera, but off camera as well. And I think that didn't help with my drinking. And I think now... I'm sober and I've been sober for 10 years. I'm now back to that sort of quite isolated child who likes to be alone but isn't lonely, um, who loves the simplest, simple life, really simple life. I hate going out in amongst loads of people. I don't like to be rushed. That's sort of, I find, overwhelming. And living in the countryside... um, doing countryside things. Can I take the dog for a walk? And just, you know, looking at this amazing world that we Mm. live in. Mm. Obviously, I've read about you in the papers and watched the TV programmes, and you always seemed so in control and so knowing what you were doing. The the thing that I found most interesting in, in your book was the honesty with which you wrote about your parents, which we've touched on, but then also your long-standing love affair with David Linley, which mm. I think everybody would find interesting. Mm. And I've also been lucky enough to go to somewhere like Kensington Palace, and that moment you describe well when you turn up and there's the policeman there, and they, they get to know you in a way they obviously never got to know me as you go in past the barriers. It is an extraordinary world, that, and that was fascinating when you wrote about it, absolutely fascinating. Yeah, it is fascinating, and, and, you know, the thing is, it's like I took it for granted. You know, I never found, oh, my God, you know, David Linney is Princess Margaret's son. I it doesn't went, come across like that No, either. and I went out with yes. him for, you know, six, seven years, and everyone expected us to get married. I did try and get him to marry him, but marry me, but unfortunately failed, or fortunately, I'm not sure which. But it was, it was like, people would say to me, my God, what's it like being with Princess Margaret? And I, I was like, well, she's my boyfriend's mum, and that's how I saw her. Mm-hmm. And she was someone who came to, into my life at the right time, because I think when you have your first kind of romance, mm-hmm. 
It's like you're, okay, I'm out of here. I'm leaving home. I'm independent. I hadn't even been to a supermarket at the age of 23. I'm very ashamed to say that. But I, I met her and she, she sort of became the maternal role model. So my mum, was, was her illness was at its zenith. She, she was at her worst. And then I very comfortably went on, was taken under the wing of Princess Margaret, who, for me, was like a second mother. And she taught me so much, because I don't know if you found this, Fiona, but growing up, you know, I had no expectation from my parents, which is why, again, this is something I realised after writing the book, that growing up, education was t completely not even discussed. I remember saying to my dad... Dad, what do you think about going to university? And he said, oh, darling, don't be silly. You'd be much better off learning how to make a beef wellington. And that's what it was like. I was like, for God's sake. And, and I didn't have an opinion about anything because my opinion didn't matter. And I didn't, I knew nothing. And it was Princess Margaret who taught me so much. One of the most valuable being to have an opinion, to stand by it through thick and thin and own it. And she, she turned me from a girl into a woman. It is an extraordinary family. I remember, um, actually thinking of Christmas time, my father and always saying, because Princess Margaret came and stayed here mm. for New Year's Eve one year. Geordie's parents, my parents and Nora, didn't really celebrate New Year's Eve. Mm. So Princess Margaret, I can't think, she might have been here with... Um, Jenny Stevens or someone, I can't remember, there was a party at Milford and um, Henry, my father-in-law, just said, well, oh, it's 10 o'clock, I think I'm quite tired, I'm going to go to bed now. And apparently Princess Margaret was really upset because she really loved a good party. I think she and Janie may have gone home to Janie's or something. But, <laughs> but she was she was very different, but part of, again, of Geordie's life growing up a little bit mm. such an elegant woman and um well she was just so misrep she's been so misrepresented mm. throughout i mean certainly in the beautiful you know the last year so beautiful. beautiful but so funny and highly intelligent really extremely well read and she loved to party and she was such an amazing judge of character she could sniff a sycophant out from a mile away you know, when we used to go and stay in Mustique, she was a bit like Mrs Danvers from Jane Eyre because she almost had the kind of set of, what do you call them, keys that open every house. And we would sneak. One of the things we loved to do is we'd go and sneak into houses around the island. So we went into David Bowie's, Bowie's house and I remember her saying he wasn't there, poor guy. We went and she went, oh this would look rather nice in suburban Tokyo. I mean, such a damning <laughs> comment, but so spot on. And um, she was, I loved her so dearly. And, and one of the most amazing things that, I mean, there are many, I've, there are quite a few anecdotes about her. Well, the one that touched me the most is that David and I, you know, we split up and David got married to Serena and I was going out with my now husband, Steen Bertelson. And... I hadn't seen her for all that time because I didn't feel it was appropriate because David was now with someone else and I didn't quite know what to do. But I missed her. I missed her more than David. And anyway, out of the blue, it's about five years later, and Steen and I got engaged and I got a call from the palace saying, Princess Margaret would like to give a dinner for you 
and your fiancé to celebrate your engagement. How amazing is that? I, can you, I mean, can you imagine? Okay, How so amazing. that, but just by any standards, for someone's, the mother of your ex-boyfriend to do that. And she wanted to make sure I was okay. So poor Steen had to come to this dinner and she just spent the whole evening saying, oh, well, of course, you know, David and Susanna, they were so in love. And <laughs> she had this really cheeky little smile. Well, you know, she was just up to mischief. And then poor Steen got a call saying, Elton John would like to take you out for lunch. And he was doing the same thing because I've known him for years. And so Elton and Princess Margaret were more responsible for my future in terms of making sure I was going to be okay than my own parents were. That was one of the most touching things I've, that anyone's ever done for me. And actually, I spoke to David not so long ago, um, Princess Margaret's son, and, and I told him about this. And he said, I never, ever knew. I can't believe she did that. And I thought, well, you know, she would have made a great spy. Mm. Such a woman. So now back to Steen and your current, your current husband. Hopefully, my beloved, long one my child group, husband, your child group. So, what do you do for Christmas? Do you you all gather in Sussex or how Fio- do you yeah, do Christmas? It's kind of a weird one, Fiona, because he Steen is with a name like Steen. He's half Danish, yes. half Australian. Oh, were they? Um, are they do do they do Christmas Eve? I've forgotten yeah. that. exactly. Yes. So. Because both my parents have passed away, so I have to kind of, you know, I'm in the, I'm in, under the thrall of the Bertelsen family. But we do Christmas Eve. We celebrate that with goose okay. and wine and sitting around the Christmas tree and stuff. No, no, we don't do that. But if we're with his family, then we they we all exchange presents, and then the next day it will be kind of oh disgusting disgusting sort of pickled herrings and revolting so I always make sure I eat before I go and then schnapps and they all get so drunk and because I mean I've done that in the past but not anymore so I love watching them all get very very drunk and then if it's otherwise it's a traditional English Christmas which I prefer I have to say so what are you this year can I ask this year it's the English one (laughs) so but I'm cooking and I get absolutely no help from my family whatsoever but I really really enjoy it Mm. I you know I'm up early getting the turkey in at sort of seven o'clock in the morning have you got a turkey then do you know what Fiona I am seriously organized as far as the food's concerned because food for me there's a there's it's debatable as to whether food is more important to me or my family and I'm not quite <laughs> sure yet because so when so many of my memories revolve around food in my book you know all my memories so many of them were triggered by what I'd stuffed in my mouth um, yeah I, I love food so much <laughs> so that's mm. one thing. how very funny and so so this time it's Christmas presents on Christmas Day. Christmas, main Christmas yeah. presents. So stockings in the morning, you know, they wake up and have their stockings. And I mean, my daughters are 21 and 19. They, I hope no children and small children are listening, but they know about the truth. They know the truth of Father Christmas, but they still are scared of him and come and sleep in our bed on Christmas Eve. So, and then we all wake up and we have our stockings, you know, at the end of the bed. And it's, it's, I love it so much. 
It's one of my favourite days. But I love Christmas lunch. That's what I really love, turkey, bread sauce. I mean, I'm salivating talking about you it. You are, aren't you? So yeah. Which is like Thanksgiving, isn't it, in America? It's like and I get very muddled because they have Thanksgiving mm. and Christmas mm. quite close together, actually, which I think I'd probably found as as the wife and mother here quite tiring to do. So I was mm. actually thinking as I was saying, sending congratulations to an American friend on Thanksgiving that I'm glad I'm not doing it mm. here again, although I've loved being asked for Thanksgiving lunch, mm. I think because of the, rather the food and that yummy pumpkin Pumpkin pie, pie and then got the grits and all yeah. of that delicious and gravy and mashed potato. And, mm. So you've now um, written this wonderful book mm-hmm. and you're going to be spending the next year probably promoting it, really, aren't you, the next well, six months? Well, this, this came out in the UK end of September and then, yeah, so I've still got... I'm going up to... I'll be, you know, around Christmas time, close to Christmas time and now sort of in Scotland. And then it comes out in America on 31st of January. Um, Hachette are publishing it, so I'll be out there um then hopefully and then um it also comes out in australia and new zealand then wow and canada congratulations yeah i hope so i mean i do think you know i do think this is uh i hope because it's not kind of based on any you know like today there's nothing sort of newsworthy about it really I mean there's some great stories which uh, make your jaw drop but um, I think it's a book that will keep going for a long time but I think it's about a life isn't it with very varied and also with all the challenges and you've you write about them with such honesty Mm. and and you know tell everybody that you you felt you didn't have a huge amount of education and what mm. were you prepared for mm. not just in terms of clothes but actually in terms of your inner self and how you were brought up in yeah. that time and it's interesting so, so. how self-worth for me has come you know I didn't have to work but that's where I got have always got the most pleasure is from you know working and making my own money. So who were your editors? How did you do that? I mean, did you show it to, to Trini because she was a big part I of your life? I did show or, it. Portrini doesn't husband? really appear in the book, though, but she's OK with that. I mean, I did with people who I've written about. So, um, like, I sent it to David Lindley, Princess Margaret's um, mother. I sent it to Anne Glenn Connor, who um, right. has written that wonderful book, Lady in Waiting, and then Whatever Next is her one that's out now and to read and I actually I've forgotten that I'd sent it to her and out of the blue I got this call saying Susanna it's Anne I was thinking who the hell is this because it was out of the blue and she said I'm furious with you and I was thinking who is this woman she said I'm furious with you and I was like I'm so sorry what's happened she said bearing in mind I'm going to be 90 in a couple of months time penny dropped and I realized it was Lady Anne Glen Connor who was Princess Margaret's lady in waiting I last night I went to bed as I always do at nine o'clock and turn my light out and you kept me up till four o'clock in the morning because I couldn't put your book down <laughs> which was such a compliment That's wonderful. and she said but what she said which was very insightful and something I hadn't thought of was that she said you saw a side of Princess Margaret that no one else did apart from her own children which mm. was this maternal side so that was very important. I was so thrilled to get that feedback from there because for one minute I was thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to have to rewrite the whole book. 
And then I sent the bits that I wrote about Elton John, I sent them to him. And there's a chapter in there about the time we first met with at the Queen Mother's house, Royal Lodge, where he was coming. He'd been invited to, to dinner to play afterwards, a bit like Mozart or Beethoven <laughs> would have done at one of the royal courts. And I wrote about it because I remember it so clearly because I was such a huge fan of his. You know, I, everyone else had Donny Osmond or David Cassidy on their wall. I had... A, I had a lovely Elton sort of with his little round glasses and his little hat on, on my wall. And um, so I wrote about what he was wearing. He had this massive sapphire, which was, you know, outshone the Queen Mother and Princess Margaret, you know, stone for stone. And I said, OK, you know, do you remember the, that night at Royal Lodge and the first time we met? And I'd sent, you know, it's, it's quite long. It's about sort of 10 pages long. And he sent me an email back saying, sorry, don't remember a thing. <laughs> so that's kind of, that's been a bit like my life. So the book originally was going to be called Girl at the Back of the Room. So I witnessed all these things like the Queen Mother, uh, no, the Queen and Margaret Thatcher fighting over a tea That was so funny, honestly. Just so funny. And I cried with laughter. She was, she was extraordinary. But, you know, the Queen... So we were having... Just to quickly touch on it, we were having tea um, by the river in this little fishing hut, and Margaret Thatcher was there and, and the Queen and a couple of other people. And the Queen asked me if I'd like a cup of tea, and I put my tea, my teacup out and said, I'd love one, ma'am, thank you. And suddenly these two hands shot in front of me, and I turned round to look, and they were belonged to Margaret Thatcher, and she took the pot, went to take the pot out of the Queen's hands, and the Queen pulled it back, and then there was this little to and froing, this complete tug, tug of, of war. war. <laughs> so that's the extraordinary anecdote, okay? But the ordinary truth, apart from them being the two most powerful women in the world at the time, the ordinary truth of that was they were fighting over who was going to play mother. And it's yes. as simple as that. But and it you, was the Queen's house, it, and I don't I think know. I'd have dreamt of doing anything like that. No, but, but can you imagine doing it in anyone's house? If someone did that to me in my house, I'd kick them out. You know, I mean, that is, it the, so you know, it's the mother's yes. domain to it pour is. the tea. It's the, the one place it's we very are truly in control. old-fashioned, yeah. traditional. Exactly. The courtesy of it, how extraordinary. No? Honestly, that was a very funny story, mm. definitely. Oh, I tell you what did make me laugh, and Hannah reminded of me, who works with me, was... Um, was the poo stories during COVID, the shampoo stories, because you didn't wash your hair for ages. Oh, I know. And your hair looked wonderful. Yes. So, so Hannah said, ask Suzanne about the poo. I love that. <laughs> the shampoo. The I did this in lockdown because I'd heard, and my father was the same, he never washed his hair ever, and he had the most amazing, luxuriously thick hair right up until he died. And I'd heard, I don't know if you've heard this, that if you don't wash your hair, it starts cleaning itself. So I thought I'd give it a go. And I actually didn't wash it for 10 weeks. And to begin with, it was like it had a life of its own. And then it was rigid and it was so itchy and disgusting. And then, sure enough, it did start to clean itself and it began to look amazing. Um, So if you can get through uh, the first three weeks were the worst... And if you can isolate yourself, I mean, that's why I did it in lockdown. It was perfect time. But it really works, and it's so good for your hair. 
How extraordinary. How often do you wash your hair? It tends to be potluck. We, we never, we washed it once a week when we were growing up. Yeah. Because I'm one of six girls. So my mother had a, your poor mother, had poor a um, hair washing kind of session. Yeah. And I probably do a bit more now, but I'm not that bothered about it, yeah. actually. There is something cleansing about letting the water run over you, mm. including your hair, which is very useful. You're washing everything off mm. from the day. Mm. And sometimes with the stress of trying to help Geordie run this house, I just feel that yeah, very I can cleansing. Complain. I never have a shower. I hate having a shower. I much prefer a bath. But I do totally get what you're saying. And it's. I remember someone telling me, we're going off on a tangent here, but it's a good one. When I was working really hard, my children were very small, and, and the one time that I found so difficult was at the end of the day and having to go through London traffic mm. and knowing that it was touch and go whether I was going to get there in time to either give them a bath or read them a bedtime yeah. story. And then if I did get there in time, because I hadn't been there during the day, it'd be like, <sighs> be hit by a wall of yes. you know these little kids. And I remember... And I found it very, very difficult. And I was, you know, I was having a tough time kind of emotionally and mentally at that time. And so I was seeing someone and she said, the best thing you can do is when you walk through the door, just walk through the door quietly and take your coat off, have a set of clothes Mm. by the front door and change from what you were wearing in the day into your kind of mum, wife clothes and that was the best bit of advice because it was like okay I'm I'm now at home you know this is me this isn't working Susanna this is mum and wife Susanna and it similar thing I'm sure as to having a shower because I actually do change Mm. when everyone's gone and I don't have to you know, have a face on to say hello to people, which mm. I do enjoy doing, but nevertheless, you're always out there. Mm. And at the end of that, I just like, I'm afraid putting on a tracky bums and, and But the joy, and whatever I mean, that's else. one of the weird, Trini always says to me, that's why you've moved to the country, because you don't mm. have to make an effort, which is... Because she comes out of, and on all the different videos, comes Ooh, out just looking extraordinary, these amazing colours and the yellows yeah. and the pinks and it's extraordinary I mean she is such a breath of fresh air though yeah she is but, amazing um, and but I, amazing. I could not do that every day I mean I'm like you you have to be open to the public yourself as well as um high clear I luckily don't so you know most of the time I look absolutely terrible and I'm okay with that you mentioned that one of the reasons for writing the book was when you dec- shared with people that you were a recovering alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And I wondered if you could share with me some of the feedback from coming out with that. I mean, the feedback, I have to say, was overwhelming. The amount of women who got in contact with me to either say thank you or my husband or my sister or one of my children or I feel so alone, thank you. I think it was a really valuable thing to have done. And what's interesting about recovery is that if you talk about your own experience, it encourages people to to realise and share their own. And there's a huge amount of, I hate the word healing in that, but Mm -hmm. that feeling of isolation. And then you know, in writing this book, I, I, one of the, you know, I wanted it to be entertaining, which it is, and I really wanted people to 
appreciate the quality of writing which they have. But the most important thing for me, despite it including names like Elton John, the Queen, Prince Philip, you know, the royal family, various different pop stars and actors, was that it was relatable. And I've had so many messages from women who have said, you know, I grew up in a completely different background to, to you. You know, we had an outside loo, la, 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 la. And they said, but they found it so relatable. And for me, that that has been the greatest compliment of all. It is, isn't it? I think it's that old thing, a problem shared is a problem halved. And I think when you are an alcoholic, it is isolating and it makes you hide from others and from yourself mm, totally and I from think yourself. covid was an extra layer on that so when you started sharing your stories it was very healing and it helped other people not to hide mm. from themselves and that's the way of stepping into a new journey isn't it it is and I think for women especially to mm. be you know, to come out and say, I am an alcoholic. There's so much more shame attached to women being an alcoholic, especially if they're a mother, because you're mm. immediately, you're either considered, a, you know, an easy lay, so someone who failure. sleeps around, yeah. or a bad mother. Whereas with yeah. a man, it's like, oh, he's one of the lads, isn't he hilarious? Mm. So it's very shameful for women, and that's a very difficult step to take. And I think women, too, also find it almost impossible to ask for help. And I've, hopefully it has encouraged women in particular to ask for help if they feel they need it. Well, that's incredibly positive. Susanna, thank you so, so much for joining me today and sharing some of the anecdotes about your life. I've loved your book, Ready for Absolutely Nothing. It's a great gift, and I wish you every success in America. Thank you so much. Mama. And Australia and New Zealand. Any, anywhere else you take it? I don't know, maybe Holland. It's, I've been to Frankfurt Book Fair, and I'm not sure yet which countries it's sold see to. So happens. see what happens, and then, yeah, paperback. And it goes on, but it's great. It's really great. And I love meeting people. I love all the book events and doing signings. It's lovely to be out, isn't it? It's just Not so with nice COVID. to meet these people who want to hear about something you've created and are really passionate about. So that makes it all worthwhile. Well, thank you so, so much. Mm.